You're listening to the Scotiabank Market Points Podcast. Market Points is part of the Knowledge Capital series designed to provide you with timely insights from Scotiabank global banking and markets leaders and experts. Cutting emissions to limit the effects of climate change demands a complete transformation in how we produce, consume, and move around. And the financial markets have the potential to be an essential driver of global economic decarbonization by putting a price on carbon and providing an incentive to reduce emissions. This episode of Market Points is the first of two parts. You'll hear the first half of a discussion between Harsh Sangvi, Scotiabank's Director of Commodities and ESG Risk Management, and Sean Locke, an Associate in Sustainable Finance at Scotiabank. They'll discuss the inner workings of the rapidly expanding carbon market, from the way credits and offsets work, to emerging trends and opportunities for businesses and investors in this new economic era of sustainability. Let's get started. Here's Sean Locke. So we've seen a lot of growth in the carbon markets and you sitting in your seat as a commodities trader, really interested to hear how you're seeing this market grow and develop. I mean, it's been exponential, Sean. Just look at the numbers. Last year, the value of the global voluntary carbon market topped a billion dollars. The all-time value now sits roughly about six and a half billion dollars. When we look at what's happening in the renewable credit space, the issuances have almost doubled during the pandemic era. Look at the price of most traded environmental markets as well. All of them have steadily increased over the last couple of years. This activity has picked up both from a pricing standpoint, demand standpoint, supply standpoint, and the markets are maturing each day. As a commodities market expert, what type of solutions are you seeing developed to help corporations and organizations participate in this markets? If you think about just how much the world has changed in the last couple of years, now look at shareholders and financial institutions. They're starting to evaluate climate risk as its own risk category for every issuer that they work with. Right. Look at countries, organizations, they're pledging aggressive decarbonization goals across their entire footprint, both direct and indirect, not just near term, but for decades to come. With sustainable finance, we're starting to see almost every single KPI that is being issued at least have one climate-related goal that companies have to effectively work towards. Yeah. Look at ratings agencies. They're starting to assign ESG scores to organizations, which is, again, something that is being used by investors in evaluating which companies that they will work with. Companies are focusing on this energy transition story a lot more than they ever have. Many fossil-focused industry sectors are now investing and repositioning themselves around energy transition. So what this means is that, you know, while a company may be an emitter today, they are creating operations and business lines that will be generating carbon credits. They're also now thinking about the operational changes required to achieve these kind of carbon objectives that they have on their end. So as you can imagine, with any change in operation, it brings cash flow volatility. Right. Carbon and the broader environmental markets are becoming their own commodity asset classes. And just like any other commodity product, you're seeing buyers and sellers use these products as a way to effectively manage their ESG goals. So what would have been, you know, let's say with a utility, power would have been a risk item or an oil and gas producer where gas or oil would have been the risk item here for any client, right, which could be corporate, institutionals, buyers, sellers, ESG is the risk item. And they're looking to solve that by using environmental trading markets and hedge that risk going forward. As companies proactively implement more aggressive ESG risk policies, you're going to start seeing an increasing in need for hedging that comes on the back of that as well. That makes a lot of sense, especially uh, when you think about how companies are really exposed to not only their operational, but their emissions across their entire value chain. And they're going to have to 
be liable for reducing those emissions. Absolutely. So I think before we dig too much deeper into the carbon markets and specific credits, I think it's really important to really understand the difference between scope one, two, and three emissions because you know the IPCC and other international bodies really state that we have to reduce emissions across the entire economy in order to achieve international climate goals. Scope one emissions are really a company's direct emissions from the sort of facilities that they own and the sources that they control. Sean, that probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but scope one, that's the easiest to quantify because it's direct purchases on any type of component that has a greenhouse gas emissions. I would assume natural gas for operating manufacturing facilities or diesel for trucks, as an example. And that's typically where folks start when they look to emission reduction. And then the other easier to quantify piece are the scope two emissions, which are technically also considered as operational emissions, but they're indirect emissions from the purchase of electricity and heat to sort of run your operations. Another one that's easy to quantify and a lot of tools available today in terms of the market and how we sort of go about managing that exposure. And last, but certainly not least, the scope three emissions. And these are emissions across your entire value chain. So it's not direct emissions from the company, but it's the emissions that are associated, you know, with the upstream supply chain of their product or even the downstream end use of the products by their consumers or customers. Which is, again, the largest category, if you will, because if you think about the pure definition, anything that gives you value is a very broad term to describe something that can be incorporated into your scope three emissions. Yeah. Because everything may give you value, but you may not be able to control all facets of that value chain. So again, probably the hardest to quantify and work towards because it's hard to kind of control all those different operations. Exactly. And it's more challenging to account for. And as such, companies have only really got started quantifying it and implementing strategies to reduce the scope three more recently. So with that said, Harsh, what are you seeing in your conversations with institutional and corporate clients trying to address this topic? As you can imagine, in net zero across all three scopes is a very, very complex endeavor, especially scope three being the hardest one of it. Right. I often get asked, you know, what are examples of scope three emissions, which is something that in my opinion impacts every single sector. Look at commercial corporations. Scope three could mean everything from the emissions from third-party service providers to logistic companies to the products that they buy. How do you forecast forward your scope three and have a plan to organically eliminate that? Because again, you're not controlling those activities. I mean, look at just the last two years. If you had to forecast your scope three emission, it would have been practically impossible because you would not have been able to account for the pandemic or the conflict in Europe. But when you think about scope three, for most organizations, they're just now starting to develop strategies that change only comes in a few years from now. For areas where companies can't reduce their carbon footprint organically, there is this sort of growing need on relying on something else to effectively offset that. And effectively, this is where the environmental credits offsets come in play, where they can be used to complement an organic change. They're not necessarily used to be the only way to reduce your emissions, but they can be used in a way to effectively complement some of the organic changes that are being implemented within the company. Look at the trends, right? Uh, you're starting to see some of that as well. In the S&P 500, almost 36% of companies are now starting to use carbon and environmental offsets to complement their net zero strategies, which is a lot more than what we saw more than five years ago. And I would personally expect the number to continue increasing from our standpoint as well, as companies get more and more aggressive 
and look at this sort of, you know, well-rounded scope one, two, and three reduction plan versus historically just focusing on scope one or just on scope two. It's great to see some of these solutions really develop and grow over time. I think uh, it would be really helpful given your expertise in the market side to give a bit of a breakdown for folks to understand the different types of environmental products. There's a lot of different names you hear out there, whether it's between compliance or voluntary markets or even the different products within those markets. Do you think you could help us understand some of these different products that are out there? Absolutely. Look, if I were to go through all the different nuances in the market, I think we'd need a very long podcast. Right. (laughs) I think broadly speaking, the markets can be grouped into two broad camps, compliance markets and the voluntary markets. Let's look at the compliance markets first. Certain jurisdictions, and this could be states, countries, provinces, have implemented a mandatory cap on direct scope one emissions. So for instance, if you're in California, Quebec, they have their own program. The EU has their own program. The UK has their own program now as well. Many countries, many states are implementing their new programs in terms of limiting the scope one emission of companies and entities within these organizations. So this means that if you're one of these geographies, you have to either limit your direct emission by a certain benchmark or purchase allowances for your excess emissions. Right. Alternatively, if you reduce your exposure below a certain threshold, you have available credits that you can now sell into the market. There are many different types of environmental products that are being now governed by compliance entities. So for instance, obviously we think about carbon as a big one, sure. but there's also renewable power energy credits, so commonly known as RECs, low fuel credits known as RINs or LTFS, and many new products are just coming to market today and will be over the next few years. So again, this market's evolving even in the compliance space, but within this camp, if you will, the compliance camp, it's all around what is a government mandated activity that you have to reduce below and above which where do you have to go and effectively buy your your excess allowances in the market. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are voluntary credits. So in geographies where there's no compliance requirement, an organization may choose to reduce their direct carbon footprint voluntarily. If they do so, they're eligible to generate a voluntary carbon offset, which can be either retired for self-benefit or be sold to another entity, which they can then retire for their own benefit. International agencies have now started putting a lot of strict criteria and methodology where companies have to prove additionality, greenwashing, permanence, and other factors before a voluntary offset can be issued or traded. Exchanges like the CME have also added voluntary carbon offsets from a future standpoint to provide further support and standardization for the market. Whether in compliance geographies or in voluntary geographies, the voluntary markets can be a good tool to incorporate into your strategy, especially around scope three, which is not governed by compliance entities. For sure. So as you can imagine, during an organization's transition, they may go from net emitters to net offset generators as their actual consumption changes. So these tradable markets, whether it be in the compliance side or on the voluntary side, allows companies to balance their net long, net short positions in real time. or also in the forward markets where they can now lock in future price for these instruments. Given ESG transition is going to be capital intensive, especially again when you incorporate scope one, two, three, the ability to kind of leverage these markets and use the compliance products, the voluntary products can be again, great tools for companies to manage cash flow risk, strategy risk, and their broader ESG risks that they have in their business. Right. And that's a real complement to what we're seeing in the sustainable finance space and the explosion in terms of sustainable debt products, just another tool really in the toolbox for these corporations. You'll hear the conclusion of this discussion in part two next episode. Thanks for listening to Scotiabank Market Points. 
be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast platform. And you can find more thought-leading content on our website at gbm.scotiabank.com. This communication does not constitute investment advice or any personal recommendation to invest in a financial instrument or investment research. This communication is provided for information and discussion purposes only. An investment decision should not be made solely on the basis of the contents of this communication. It is not to be construed as a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any financial instruments and has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any recipient. The information in this communication is based on publicly available information, and although it has been compiled or obtained from sources believed to be reliable, such information has not been independently verified and no guarantee, representation, or warranty expressed or implied is made as to its accuracy, completeness, or correctness. Past performance or simulated past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. Forecasts are not a reliable indicator of future performance. Please refer to our legal disclosures on our website.